0: Success for me right now is about being happy and having the space to enjoy the life that I have worked so hard to build. When I am hitting all my goals, but I am stressed beyond belief, I'm not sleeping, I'm constantly monitoring, I'm thinking through plan B, C, D, E, and F in case something doesn't work out, then I'm not present for any of it. And I did not work this hard. to find this husband, to have these children, to get to this point in my life, to not be present and to be managing a future that hasn't happened yet.
1: This is the Sustainable Ambition Podcast and I'm your host, Kathy Onetto. Here we explore how to dream big and work smart while making time for our lives and ourselves. Today, I'm in conversation with Christina Wallace, author of the new book, The Portfolio Life, How to Future-Proof Your Career, Avoid Burnout, and Build a Life Bigger Than Your Business Card. This book is so on point with what we explore here on the podcast, the ideas of having big ambitions and navigating the natural rhythms of our life and work, while also allowing ourselves to craft these in a way that results in more joy and less stress. What does Christina mean by a portfolio life? She'll tell us more in the episode, but here I wanna offer this frame. In the book, Christina writes, quote, the term portfolio life was first coined in 1989 by Charles Handy in his book, The Age of Unreason. He bristled at the notion that your life's work should be one narrowly defined job and instead argued it could be a collection of passions, interests, and hobbies. So what to take away there is broaden your view of the possibilities for your work. And you'll hear about this in the episode. Christina goes on, quote, while his definition was still work-focused, I expand the definition of a portfolio life more broadly to include relationships, community, personal growth, and impact. So what you're hearing in that, it's a full portfolio across work and life. And in the book, Christina tells you the why, what, and how. Why is this important now? What does your portfolio look like and how to make it a reality for you? So let's jump into the episode where I'll formally introduce you to Christina and where you'll hear how the portfolio life invites you to own your agency, to craft the life you deserve. Welcome back, everyone. I am so excited to be joined today by Christina Wallace, author of the new book, The Portfolio Life, How to Future-Proof Your Career, Avoid Burnout, and Build a Life Bigger Than Your Business Card. Christina is a self-described human Venn diagram, a concept which we'll hear more about, and she has crafted a career at the intersection of business, technology, and the arts, She is currently a senior lecturer at Harvard Business School, where she teaches entrepreneurship and marketing. Christina is a serial entrepreneur who has built businesses in e-commerce, edtech, and media. And prior to this book, she also co-authored New to Big, How Companies Can Create Like Entrepreneurs, Invest Like VCs, and Install a Permanent Operating System for Growth. She was also the co-host of The Limit Does Not Exist, an iHeart podcast with millions of downloads. In her free time rounding out her (laughs) own portfolio, she sings with various chamber choirs, embarks on adventure travel, and is a self-described mediocre endurance athlete. She also has the roles of wife and mother to two children. So I think a very well-rounded portfolio (laughs) indeed, Christina. So welcome to the show. Oh, I need a nap after that. I know. (laughs) I went for the full bio there. Yes, getting it all in. (laughs) Thank you for having me, Kathy. (laughs) Yes, of course. Well, I absolutely love the book, Christina. And I think it will be really, I think this is going to be a must read for those navigating life and work in the decades ahead. And I love the philosophy and the model and, how you really arm readers with so much to support them in building the portfolio life. And it's like, uh, get ready to get to work, folks. Like, <laughs> and like this isn't pie in the sky. You really give people tools mm-hmm. to get to work. And I'm sure we'll cover some of those details today, you know, because you even get into things like utilization rate and how mm-hmm. to calculate one's, you know, hourly rate if they choose <laughs> to do that. And a lot of people, and myself included, don't always think to go like, oh, are people going to really want to hear? these nitty gritty details. But this is the really, really, you need to, to know some of this if you're yeah. going to go out on your own, or what have you. But before we get there, let's start <laughs> at the basis. Like, how do you describe the portfolio life and why should we embrace this model in today's world? Sure. So the portfolio life really
0: is based on three tenets. Number one is you are more than one job or opportunity, right? Your identity is not what you do for money. Um, number two diversification is what is going to help you mitigate the uncertainty and the constant disruptions that we are facing in today's world. And number three is that you can rebalance your portfolio. Your needs will change, your wants will change as you go through different seasons of life, and you can change your mind about what you want to be doing and how you allocate your time.
1: One of the things you touched on there at the very beginning is this sense of identity. And that was something that really came through for me that there's this like, I use the word almost like this identity freedom Mm -hmm. to what you're exploring here and giving people this freedom to go beyond just your business card, you know, Mm -hmm. and what that work is so central to our identity, which is the case more so here in the United States. So can you share a little bit more about like how you think Allowing people to broaden beyond like just seeing work as their identity is kind of really crucial to being able to kind of, I don't know if it's future-proof for your career. Do you see that as being like the ability to avoid burnout? Like how do you see that playing into this concept?
0: Yeah, it, it comes in a number of dimensions, right? So number one is when you let your job be your identity, you are literally putting your identity in someone else's hands right? Someone else can fire you, can lay you off, your entire industry could disappear overnight, and then you lose who you are. And I think we've seen this historically in blue-collar workers in industry like mining, where they lose their sense of purpose when that industry leaves their town. But you can also see this in folks even right now that are getting laid off after just 18 months ago having the upper hand in negotiations. So so it's important to make that distinction so that your identity can't be taken away from you. But it's also crucial in giving yourself permission to see what else is out there, right? If you form your identity around what you do today and an opportunity shows up, then the story you tell yourself about yourself will will edit that opportunity and say, no, that that's not who I am, I, I'm not a fit for that even if you're interested in it, even if it could be a really interesting zigzag for you. So having an expansive identity that you truly believe internally is actually what gives you optionality as opportunities come and the world changes. And you might say, well, I, I did this for one chapter of my life, and I'm going to do that for the next chapter. And I have not changed who I
1: am I'm just changing what I do, you know, so many people tell us to choose and to focus. <laughs> and, you know, but what you're sharing in 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 what you just expressed is that we also limit ourselves. yeah. and I think a lot of people actually want to. The mindset is almost like, let me find that path because then I can settle in. yeah, I can, you know, the stress of figuring what's next or what I'm supposed to be doing, you know, I can lay that stress down. It's kind of like I found where Mm -hmm. I'm meant to be. Mm -hmm. And yet there's a lot of risk in doing that as well. And so what I hear you saying is like, really open your eyes and in your lens and your own sense of identity to Mm -hmm. allow for more possibility. I'm glad you brought this illustration into the book because this was one of my favorite illustrations was a Tim Urban Mm. illustration of like the multiple paths. (laughs) Can you tell us about that? What do we get wrong about <sighs> wanting to focus and shoes? Yes. So
0: it's this beautiful drawing, um, that Wait Not Why is his handle on Instagram. That's where I first came across it. Tim, uh, Tim Urban. He, he draws this like, it's, it's like, All these different strands of spaghetti, right? These different paths that you could go on. And it's a little bit of a graph. So on the, you know, the left hand side, it's like, you know, the beginning of your life. And as you go along the bottom, you know, sort of inch along, that's like years of your life passing by. And there's a line through the middle of these intersecting paths. And it's like, okay, here's where you are today. And there's a little dot, right? That's where you are today. And to the left of that line are all the paths that are now closed to you. You didn't choose those paths, those doors have closed. And then to the right of that line, stemming off of just that single dot are a whole nother multiplicity of lines that grow out of it. Almost like a you can think of it like a genealogical tree, right? Of the, the branches of that tree. And on the right, it says all the paths that are still open. And I think it's fascinating because the perception is like this when you when you focus, when you choose a path, that you're narrowing down to that dot. And then from that dot, there's only one path that follows. That's, that's the idea. And theoretically, that path is up and to the right, <laughs> you hope. But that's just not the case. It just means that this is where you are today. And coming out of that, you could make so many different choices. And you still have options. But you have to recognize you have options before you can even see what those options are.
1: Yeah. And open yourself to that possibility, to Mm -hmm. all these possibilities that are out there. You know, I wanted to ask you about, like, when you think about the model, like, what aspects are kind of crucial to helping future-proof. And this sense of identity, Mm -hmm. to me, actually, now as you're describing it more, I'm like, well, that's a way of future-proofing, right? If you can Mm -hmm. allow yourself, given the fact that our world is changing so much, to allow yourself to see multiple possibilities for yourself, that's a way of Mm future-proofing. But the second thing you shared at the beginning was there's also this concept of diversification. And what's interesting, for those of us who grew up (laughs) in the business world and took several finance classes, Mm -hmm. like, Diversification (laughs) is a very common kind of thing to think about. But I don't know if it's as common, really, for all people, you know, Mm if you happen to study something different. So what is important about diversification? And do you tie that to future proofing? Or how do you think about that concept? Absolutely. So you're right.
0: Not everyone gets a finance background, right? Like, I didn't learn about diversification until I went to business school. And I studied portfolio theory in the finance classes. And it's this idea that you can design an allocation of assets in a financial portfolio to meet both a risk profile that you care about, how much are you willing to take a chance here, and to meet a certain reward or return profile. So you might say when you're very young as financial advisors uh, tell us to do, put more of your money into riskier assets like stocks in the stock market because you have a long enough time period that you can take that risk now and you need the growth, you need the return in order to build the wealth you're gonna need in retirement. But as you get closer to retirement, You don't have as much time to offset that risk. So you need to pull that risk profile back and go for bonds, go for fixed income securities so that you have lower risk and lower return. And that's okay because you're going to need that money sooner. So it's this idea that you can actually design a mix of things with the acknowledgement that each individual thing might not pan out. But that's okay because collectively the portfolio will deliver. And it's the idea that, again, we don't know what the future disruptions look like. I mean, since locking in the text of this book, AI and chat GPT have blown up every conversation I'm in. Like, we're freaking out at Harvard Business School about what this means for everybody, right? And that is just in the time since I finalized the proof pages on my book and before I went to press. So... That is how fast these things can come on. And that make no mistake, this is going to change everything in the next five years. So if you can't plan for the future, and you can't, then you need to have a lot of bets in play so that one of them can pan out even if I can't tell you which one it is. So diversification absolutely future-proofs what what you're looking for. But in many ways, I would say all of the attributes of a portfolio life future-proof because diversification future-proofs you against outside uh, disruptions, right? Optionality, identity, they both future-proof you on outside disruptions, but also internal changes of needs, of wants, as you develop and grow as a person, you might not be the same person at 55 as you were at 25. And if you start on a path and then you outgrow it, and you don't see any other options for yourself, you're going to feel constrained to this life that doesn't fit you, and you're not going to be happy. So it it gives you the permission to change and grow, knowing that you can adjust with it. And then the last piece of the model around flexibility sort of feeds into that as well. It's as you have other things that enter your life, caregiving responsibilities, financial responsibilities, um, other parts that you want to be able to give time and attention to. How can you rebalance your mix of activities to make space for them rather than the old model, which was, okay, you can't work anymore, flip that switch, on, off, on, off. Like that That
1: doesn't fit most people. So how can you remix it? I'd love to just build on to this just so people, I, I mentioned it in your intro, but people can have this as part of the mix of like, what you bring into the portfolio life and how to think about it mm-hmm. is this concept about the human Venn diagram. Yes. And I also just love the story of how you came <laughs> up with this analogy when you were um, introducing yourself. So mm-hmm. can you tell us more about that concept <laughs> and also about like, how has it supported you navigating your life and career by thinking of yourself as a human Venn diagram? Yeah, so so
0: I will be the first to admit this title came out of maybe a couple of glasses of wine. Um, I was an entrepreneur building my first company coming out of business school. It's 2011. And I was going to all of these investment events, these pitch events, where there's a ton of founders, there's a ton of investors, and you get like 30 seconds to introduce yourself, to make an impression, and then they sort of decide – do I want to spend more time with you or not? It's not unlike speed dating now that I think about it. And so I was really struggling of, you know, how do I introduce myself? I was a double major in math and theater. I'd worked in in opera at this point. I'd worked in management consulting at this point. I had done all these different things that on the surface, if I just like recited my resume to you at like double speed um, – you probably get the impression that I'm a dilettante, that I can't pick something and just get, you know, get focused. But if I don't tell you all the things that I do, if I just say, Oh, you know, I'm an MBA. I worked in management consulting. You'll be like, what evidence do I have that you can build a company? So that didn't work either. And I was, I was really at my wits end and I finally was just like, you know what? Everyone loves a good Venn diagram set theory for the win. I'm a human Venn diagram and the investor just paused and he kind of smiled and he goes, huh, interdisciplinary. I like it. Okay, tell me more, which is the goal of an intro, right? You just want to earn the tell me more. And I realized that this idea clicked. So I started using it as my bio line, right? In the first sentence of my biography, because as my you know the next 10 years of my career zigged and zagged i was the ceo of a fashion company and then i founded a, a nonprofit startup focused on girls and computer science and then i went into media and then right and again if i was changing that intro line every 2 to 3 years you'd be like what is up with this chick like just pick something but instead i was like no 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 you you don't get it all of these things connect they all connect And that connection is at the intersection of business, technology, and the arts. Everything I have done has fit into somewhere in that Venn diagram. And so if you understand that that has always been my true north, then these zigs and zags all make sense because you're like, okay, they're in the same plane. They're just going in different directions. So I, I started using this. I used it a ton in my podcast. And as the phrase kind of took hold, certainly in the Twitter sphere, more and more people were like, Oh, I, that, that is what I'm looking for because it gives me permission to be all of who I am and make sense of the different things I do
1: within that strategy. Yeah, I just love this. And I, but it makes me also think, Christina, because as I was reading the book, some people might start with that and think, like, oh, so is this for only like multidisciplinary individuals? And yet, if you, you know, go back to the idea of diversification, it's almost like actually the goal here is to almost become multidisciplinary, right? Like it's to, you know, have the goal of creating a Venn diagram, building your diversification. And I know diversification plays out in different ways, Mm -hmm. but is that how you think about it? Like, is this really about like, no, this is really, it's not for just those of us who have a lot of different interests. (laughs) Like, you know, it's almost like the book Range where it really Mm -hmm. talks about the importance of like broadening our horizons, learning about a lot of different things because you can bring those into anything that you might do. Uh, It is. You're exactly right. This is not just for the weirdos like you and me.
0: And I say that with love. (laughs) Yes. This is for everyone because here's my argument. I believe that everyone is a human Venn diagram. Everyone. I look at my three-year-old daughter who can go from playing with trucks to building towers to dancing in her tutu to hand painting all while singing. Like None of that is contradictory to her. And then I go and think about my time building Bridge up STEM, which was a program for girls in computer science at the American Museum of Natural History. And this was a program uh, these are high school girls um, interviewing for a fully paid you know after school program, learning coding, learning databases, and data visualization, very nerdy stuff at a science museum, mind you. And in the interview, I asked them to bring in something that they had made. It was the only direction, bring in something you have made. And to a girl, every single one of them brought in something artistic. Mm. They brought in a painting, a poem, a video of a dance that they had choreographed. They brought in music, sheet music of a song they wrote. They did not see anything contradictory about being creative and wanting to code and learn about climate change and dinosaurs and, you know, exoplanets. And and this goes back to why I debunk this myth of left brains and right brains in the book as well, because we have these, again, the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. We have these boxes that either other people have put us in or that we have put ourselves in. We say, oh, I'm bad at math. Oh, I'm not a left brain. I'm a right brain. And by having that shorthand for who we are, Something pops up and you say, well, I'm not going to try that. I'm, I'm a right brain. I'm creative. And you're like, no, 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 that literally doesn't exist. Um, you have it within you to be analytical and logical if you want to. You, it might not be the strongest of your skills, but you still have it. And so I, I push people in the chapter on Venn diagrams to excavate the pieces of themselves that they might have carved off or put away as they started to focus and become more serious and and really bring them back and say, are any of these things that you might want to bring back into your life? Or are they skills or perspectives that actually might be really valuable at this stage, even if you haven't dusted them off in 20 years? So it's, I don't know, it's permission to find all of the pieces of who you were once upon a time
1: and give them some space and some air to reconnect. I love that. It goes back to, again, building that holistic identity Mm -hmm. and that permission to kind of like, yes, bring back those elements that you might've put aside once we start getting socialized out into the world. So, yeah, for sure. Well, I wanted to come back. You started at the beginning with these three elements um, that you pulled forward. I wanted to come back to this idea of rebalancing portfolio because, you know, prior to the interview, I asked you how you define sustainable ambition. And I loved both of your interpretations, uh, which I'm going to take in parts. (laughs) You know, the one that I want to call out here, you said, quote, crucially, it's ambition that can evolve as your priorities and needs change through different seasons of your life. Mm -hmm. And I love this. It's exactly one of the core philosophies I hold around sustainable ambition. You know, what is the right ambition for this right time for you given the context of your life? Mm -hmm. And you write about this for yourself and how you using your model really rebalanced your portfolio as you had children, Mm -hmm. perhaps in other times in your life. Can you share more about that and how you've made choices around your ambitions considering the seasons of your life? Yeah.
0: I spent my twenties building startups. I was either the founder of or joining the early founding executive team of four different companies. And those are not nine to five jobs. <laughs> those are kind of all, all on all the time. Even if you're not technically working seven days a week, you're definitely thinking about it, it involved a lot of travel. It involved just a lot of. A lot of effort and focus. And I loved doing it. I loved it. But as I, I got to the point where I was ready to have kids, I reflected on my own childhood, my husband on his as well. And we had a long conversation about what we wanted our lives with children to look like. I mean, it was, we were both on the older side uh, and in our uh, mid to late thirties and we could have easily Chosen not to have kids and had continued on with our very big lives and had a lot more disposable income right now. But we wanted kids. We were making this choice. And I said, if we're going to do that, then I want to make sure that I'm doing it in a way that lives with my values. And I realized I couldn't be flying a hundred thousand miles a year and put my kids to bed most nights of the week. I Didn't want to have my phone on the table at dinner, constantly monitoring it for work disasters. I didn't want my weekends more often than not to be co-opted by fire drills of, well, we just got to sprint on this deck and get it out. And so I, I recognized that I was at the point that I was ready to either start another company or join another, you know, young company and, and move on or to do something else. And the answer was I needed to do something else. And it was at that point I had my first child. I was, I was looking through kind of what comes next that I was able to reconnect with and, and bring up an opportunity to become a professor at Harvard Business School. Then the pandemic hit. And so that was a, a fun moment of uncertainty, but it, it turned out to be the most perfect match at this stage. I'm three years in. My kids are constantly sick. And there is no way that I would have survived the last three years if I had kept the pace that I had had prior. And even not just on the work side. I I sing in choirs. I've been singing my entire life. I sing, I play piano, I play cello, but singing is sort of the thing I've kept the longest into adulthood. And when we moved to Boston, I started looking for choirs to join. And I was like, okay, like, do I want to go big choir, maybe a symphonic choir, we can like sing, you know, the big masses and, and the requiems with orchestras? Do I want to go maybe a small chamber ensemble that's like a cappella? I was going down this whole rabbit, what do I need for auditions? And then I start looking at the rehearsal times. And I was like, okay, so it's Monday night, seven to 10, or Thursdays, 630 to 930. And my husband works every Tuesday night, late into the night. He's a public servant and they have a town meeting every night, every Tuesday. And I was like, okay, so two nights out of the week, we won't see each other and we're both going to be single parenting. And then I got to throw in concerts and extra rehearsals when we get close to concerts. And I've got this book coming out and they also want me to take on a leadership role in this course. And I start doing the math and I'm like, I'm literally getting back to the 110% capacity that I had prior to kids. And that's not what I want. And so it was a really hard decision, but I put choirs on the back burner for a little while. I put a number of things on the back burner for a little while, and I said right now, my portfolio has a lot of time dedicated to my kids. And that's okay. That's what this chapter of life
1: requires. It's not forever. I really appreciate you sharing this example, and I appreciate how honest you were also in the book about navigating these balances, also the conversations with your husband. And I, this, you know, I really appreciate it because... Um, sometimes I just hear a lot of tension that people experience with my coaching clients and talking with friends around making these choices around these different things that are really important for us in our Mm -hmm. lives. And we can have a a tremendous amount of angst around it. And around not being able to see like, you're really ambitious about your family right now and about Mm -hmm. your children and about crafting this kind of life for yourself. Mm -hmm. And allowing that to be a part of an acceptable ambition, that ambition doesn't have to just be about work and our career. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on just like, how can we give ourselves a little bit more like self compassion and a little bit more grace around putting some things on the back burner. And I really like about how you talk about this in the book. And in this example is a great illustration of it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's like this these two kind of messages hanging over at least most millennials heads, I don't speak for Gen Z or Gen X, but at least my my corner of the generation. Number one is you can be anything. And number two is you can have it all, right? Especially women have been socialized, you can be anything, which means the way we interpreted it, you have to be something amazing. Or you have squandered this opportunity to be anything and you could have it all, which means if you are struggling to have it all, then you must have screwed up somehow. And I appreciate both of those messages for what they were trying to tell us that our parents' generation couldn't be anything and they couldn't have it all. But I think it, it then resulted in this other extreme where we feel guilty when we feel that tension, that friction, and we're trying to be, you know, what we were raised to be. And, and so we think we can just muscle through it. If I just work a little harder, this is where the hustle culture seeps in. It's not just on work, it, it seeps in on parenting too. This idea that like, I just have to work harder and then it will work out. And I think instead, what i'm hoping i literally am telling myself this over and over and you know you get to be part of the conversation with me and my own my own voice is that having it all doesn't mean having it all at the same time and that allowing myself seasons gives myself the permission to ebb and flow what all those things are and that just because i put something on the back burner doesn't mean it can't come back it very well likely come back and if it doesn't come back it might be because i no longer want it so i don't know part of this i hope is just giving people the the language to feel like they have the permission to take these things in
1: stages i think you know we we don't realize how much how important language is yes. in terms of shaping our I- ideas of what models work and mm-hmm. what they're supposed to look like. Yeah. So, I-, I wanted to come back then to your second thing that you talked about with sustainable ambition in terms of how you articulated it. You said mm-hmm. it's the opposite of burnout, it's the ability to dream big and work hard and still have space and support for rest and recharging along the way. Mm-hmm. I was curious if you could share, you know if you think like, can you dream big and work hard? Is that at odds with sustainability? And then how have you found that the portfolio life has helped you in building more sustainability and avoiding burnout?
0: Yes, burnout is absolutely the thing that I struggle with the most. And I say this straight up in the book, like do as I say, not as I do, because I am still working on this. But it, you know, it, it comes from a place. I do dream big. I have huge goals for my life and for my family and for my friends. I mean, no one can talk anyone up better than I can talk my friends up. Like bring it, right? Huge goals. And I dream in technicolor and I work hard. And every time I've gotten to the point of burnout, I have said, you could absolutely have seen this coming and And there's so much research behind this. There's so much evidence that says, like, working more than 50, 55 hours a week, like, has diminishing returns. There's literally no point. And and we look at athletes. We don't expect someone to run a marathon and then get up and run another – an hour later, right? Recovery, nutrition – Rest. These are all really important components of the training for athletes who have big goals and who work really hard to achieve them. And I fully understand that in that context, in the physical context, you exercise hard, you have to recover hard. It absolutely is true in, in our lives too. And that's both physical rest, but also mental rest, the space to daydream and meander and browse and get bored. All of these things are crucial for recovery and for finding the space to, to find that next push for your ambition. Otherwise, you burn out. And so I, I don't think these are at odds. The challenge is when you are leading a portfolio life, you can easily become overbooked and overburdened, particularly because you like all the things you're doing. You chose them for your portfolio. And unlike just having sort of one job and maybe nothing else in your life, each of the pieces don't necessarily see the commitments that the other pieces have, right? You sign up for this thing, they don't know what you've already said yes to in other parts of your life. So you are the only person that has the full story, which means it is on you to be active in managing your capacity, your load. And there are moments where you have to say, if I say yes to this thing, it's going to put me above capacity. And you can surge every once in a while, but you can't sprint an entire marathon. So so being really intentional about where you allocate your effort, your resources, your, your physical health, is what allows you the stamina to go after those big goals. You have a couple
1: of tools in the book that I mm-hmm. think can relate to this. And I'm curious if you would be able to share or just give a highlight of like a couple of the tools. Because there's actually, as I'm reflecting here, there's several that one yes. can kind of pull to kind of – uh that people could utilize to address kind of what you're talking about in terms mm-hmm. of like navigating these, these um, challenges of when we get over committed. So do you want to share just a couple <laughs> that you might point people to to kind of consider? Sure. So there's a couple of tools uh, that I love in this world,
0: but uh, two that I have uh, blatantly stolen from my colleagues in the operations management world uh, are around critical path and um, capacity utilization. So the critical path is when you are working on sort of a big project. Um, I use an example in the book of my friend Risa, who plans this elaborate Thanksgiving dinner with her Filipino American family. And you have multiple moving pieces, some dependencies from one thing to the next, and a fixed amount of resources. You have to map out how do I stage these things? Which things have to go before which other things? And then once this whole thing is mapped out, how tight, how how uh, rigid or how flexible is the critical path, which is if everything goes right, that sort of tells you the shortest amount of time you can do the whole thing in. And if you aren't giving yourself flexibility of like, oh, something might go wrong. That piece might be delayed. Those biscuits might get burnt. Whatever that thing is, if you have a very rigid critical path that says it takes, I'm making this up 22 hours and I'm giving myself 22 hours and seven minutes, right? Like that's not reality. That's not real life. And you're going to be stressed the whole time because not only do you have to do all these things, you have to also live one layer above while monitoring To make sure that everything is still going right. That is very stressful and you don't get to enjoy any of it. So there's a way to think about the critical path and how much flexibility you're building in to accommodate the reality of life. This is where I never followed my own advice. I'm like, it'll work out. doesn't. It doesn't always work out. The other piece is around capacity utilization. And this is a fancy way of saying, how busy are you, right? Of how much time you have, What proportion of it has already been spoken for? And this is important. We're not just talking your job here. We're also talking soccer practices that you have to cart the kids to and, you know, brunch with your in-laws on Sunday and all of the things that you have committed and not just appointments. This could be thing, commitments you make to yourself. I want to work out four days a week. I want to take time to go to acupuncture. Whatever those things are, those are committed hours. So as you look across your whole portfolio, your goal is to be at a maximum of 85% capacity utilization. That means 15% of your time should be promised to nobody and nothing. And I got this number from research in high performing manufacturing lines. And you might say, Christina, I am a human, not a manufacturing line. You would be correct. But the point is, manufacturing lines, the really highest performing ones theoretically have worked out all the kinks. They've worked out all the systems and they, they just work. You ever seen like a bottling factory for Coke or something, or like the little peeps, you know, the marshmallow peeps, like you just watch, it's like mesmerizing, right? You would think once you figured out all these pieces, you could run the factory at 100% utilization. No, they limit it to 85 to leave space for planned downtime, to leave space for routine maintenance, to leave space for those surges. Maybe they have a special customer who shows up and says, I'm Desperate, can you squeeze me in? And they say, for you, sure. And they say, okay, for one day, we're going to go up to 90% because we want to meet this goal to leave space for do-overs. You make a mistake and there's no capacity to, to do it again. You're stuck. So to think about your capacity capped at 85%, including the hours you've promised to yourself allows you the space for life to happen and it not to destroy your whole day. And crucially, it also allows you space for serendipity and for magic, for the opportunities that you could not have seen coming, and that could change
1: your life. You got to leave space for that. For sure. I love this. And it's interesting for those people who haven't worked in like a time-based you know, role where you're tracking your time and you're actually like evaluated on utilization or you're, you know, it's just a measure that is used within the workplace to kind of understand busyness. It can Mm -hmm. feel a little odd, but it's actually really wise because we, it's Mm -hmm. rare that we actually look at our full to-do list that we're putting Mm -hmm. on our plate and actually match it to our time. I fully recognize how absolutely nerdy so many of these things are.
0: I had one review that's like, it's a little wonky, but it works. And I'm like, thank you.
1: Yes. Well, I accept that. <laughs> yeah. I think it's like, it's practical, but maybe that's because yep. I love models. <laughs> um, well, as I start to wrap up with you, I want to just ask mm. a couple of questions before my final one. What, one sure. is that within this model of the portfolio life, how do you think about success?
0: Mm. <sighs> that's a great question.
1: Success for me
0: honestly, right now is about being happy and having the space to enjoy the life that I have worked so hard to build. When I am hitting all my goals, but I am stressed beyond belief, I'm not sleeping, I'm constantly monitoring, I'm thinking through plan B, C, D, E, and F, in case something doesn't work out, then I'm not present for any of it. And I did not work this hard to find this husband, to have these children, to get to this point in my life to not be present and to be managing a future that hasn't happened yet. So right now, success, and again, do as I say, not as I do. I am not there yet. But success for me right now is being able to be present and enjoy the fruits of my labor It's beautiful.
1: And what is your ambition for the book and Mm. the impact you hope it has in the world? I hope it has sort of two pieces of impact, one on an
0: individual level and one on an organizational level. On the individual side, I hope it becomes the next what color is your parachute, particularly for people who are going through moments of transition. Because I think there's a lot of power in those moments, but also a lot of fear and uncertainty and if you feel like you have a model, you have permission, again, the power of naming something and outlining it, I feel like it will give a lot of people that that space and that breadth of opportunity to really open their eyes and think, okay, what's next for me here? And on an organizational level, I want managers and companies to understand how valuable it is to them when their workers have lives outside of work, how helpful it is to their bottom line that their employees don't burn out, that their employees are thinking about future-proofing their career by having hobbies or small businesses or side projects or whatever those things are, that that gives them the flexibility to try other things, to even think diagonally within the organization. And then instead of having to hide all of the things that you do, you can be open about it and you can show up and say, hey, I know photography isn't part of my day job, but I actually do photography on the side. Is there any chance I might be able to take on some projects in my free time for the company? Right. I know coding isn't part of my day job, but I've been teaching myself to code on the side. Is there an opportunity maybe for my next role to find a job that involves some coding as part of that? Right? Like this is, this is the future of work. It, it's not, uh, it doesn't put you at risk if your employees have options. I promise it doesn't.
1: I so appreciate both of these, Christina, and you pulling these forth. I was going to ask you about this, so I'm so glad that you brought it forth that it's it's great to me that part of your ambition is to change company culture and how Mm -hmm. they see individuals and possibilities in terms of who they hire, how they manage talent internally, et cetera. And I love that you're a professor at Harvard business school because like (laughs) they should listen to you then. Right. I That's the hope. (laughs) Yes. And that you're an innovator, right. And somebody who teaches entrepreneurship, right. And wrote a book about how do you be more innovative inside big companies? Like, you know, Oh, this is this is one of those things, so I love it. Um, well, just to wrap up, I'd like to just mm-hmm. ask you, like, what's a final takeaway? Like, this may be a big question, but what's a final Ooh. takeaway or guidance you'd leave our listeners with around just stepping into the portfolio life? Because I say it's a big question because there's a lot in the book that people could do, but where might you point people to kind of get started with this after they buy the book?
0: I mean, buy the book and then get a a stack of post-its, because as you said at the beginning, there's work to be done here. And I did this intentionally. I I get really frustrated sometimes reading books that like are super inspirational and they open my mind to an idea. And then I'm like, but what am I supposed to do with it? So I made this very hands-on. And you're gonna get the most value if you do the exercises. Maybe even grab a friend and do it with them. But I think the takeaway that I I really want your listeners to walk away with is that you deserve a life that has rest, <laughs> that has a rewarding career, that has space for you to be happy. And I think one of the maybe unfair criticisms of young people today, this YOLO uh, uh, pejoratively said, you only live once. But we do. We do only live once. And tomorrow is not promised. And this notion of like suck it up and be miserable for 40 years so that someday you can retire and enjoy your retirement savings at 65, assuming you still have your health and assuming the world still stands. That's a, that's a calculation that a lot of young people aren't willing to make anymore. So just embrace the fact that like you're allowed to be happy today, not someday, today. And you can still be ambitious, but also care about joy.
1: Those are not at odds. Mm, Thank you for that as a closing inspiration and like piece of wisdom for all of us, frankly. So where can people find you and find out more about the book? So
0: PortfolioLife.com, there's more about the book. There are links to all of your favorite online retailers. You can also pick it up at your local independent bookstore, your library, if they don't stock it, tell them to stock it. Um, and to follow me your best bet is on LinkedIn as deeply unsexy as that sounds. Um, that's where I post a lot of other things and share other people's work that I think is relevant to this. So uh,
1: LinkedIn is probably where I'll be. Wonderful. Well, Christina, again, thank you for this conversation. I absolutely love the book. Like I said, I do think it's going to become like what color is your parachute and become a must read for people. So thank you for the effort to put it out into the world. (laughs) It's no small feat. So
0: thank you so much for having me, Kathy. This has been a wonderful conversation.
1: I so appreciate Christina's ambitions for her book, and I'm right there with her. Both my hope for those of you facing career transitions that you can give yourself what I'll call identity freedom to open up your field of vision for all the possibilities in front of you and experience less angst and more joy in your exploration and around her ambition for companies, for them to get their act together around this and allow for more possibilities for who we can be both inside and outside of work. Pulling through a few threads that spoke to me out of today's conversation with Christina on the portfolio life, I want to offer a few questions for you to consider along the lines of the pillars of sustainable ambition. So around right ambition, if you were to create your Venn diagram, what might you put in your three circles? Christina offers an exercise in the book to help you do this. Around right time, I wanna offer two prompts. First, I often say that we should be taking good risks always. So what bets do you wanna have in play right now to allow for diversification and building in optionality to fuel future possibilities? The second question I'd pose is, how can you allow yourself more grace in navigating the shifting of your portfolio for different seasons of your life? What do you wanna prioritize in your portfolio now? What might you choose to put on the back burner? And then finally, around right effort, are you thinking about your capacity and load? I loved the examples that Christina shared and the tools she offered. How can you create more sustainability by leaving more space in your schedule, in your capacity, and in your plans? So with that, let's grab our post-its and get to work in building a life with work that works for you. You've been listening to the Sustainable Ambition Podcast. Find more inspiring interviews and get links to the ideas, resources, or people in today's show at sustainableambition.com podcast. And if you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to hear more, please follow or subscribe. It's absolutely free, and that way you don't miss an episode. Thanks again for being with me today. See you next time.